0: Hi, and welcome to the Dress That Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Um, There it is. Well, hey, my name is Sean. If I didn't uh, tell you, if you don't already know, um, that sounded really cocky. It's not what I meant. Uh, But but I'm so excited that you guys are here uh, with us this morning. We're going to be continuing our series uh, Jesus God of the impossible as we uh, continue in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles um, or you use an app or your phone or a tablet or maybe you've memorized all the gospel of John, you're just that good. Um, we're going to be in John 2 this morning talking about Jesus's very first miracle. Now if you were here last week and if you weren't uh, you should go listen it's on podcasts on the internet because um, if you put an S on there it makes you cool I guess. But uh But why don't you go back and listen, because I think what is going to happen, and you're going to see, is this is going to continue to set up through the next month and a half or so as we talk about who Jesus actually is by the Gospel of John. So last week, we talked about a very famous verse, John 1.1, and exactly who Jesus is, because if we know who Jesus is, and we trust who Jesus is, that builds into everything else. Succinctly put, if, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then none of this actually matters. Like, if he's just a good moral teacher, right, if he's just one of the many gods, it, then then what we actually do here doesn't matter. Then everything that he said doesn't matter. It's not important. because He doesn't fill the role that he says, and he has to fill that role in order for all of this to make sense, to be powerful, to be worth you giving yourself to. And so we talked about that, and this week, what I want to maybe venture our hearts toward, I, I hope you can walk in this with me, is, is that God. God is dead set on doing the impossible in your life. But see, we've messed this up a little bit. Now, some of you guys might have a couple red flags up right now. Like, you heard me say that, and you're like, whoa, we're getting really Pentecostal really fast here. Like, are the praise flags coming next week? No, take it easy. It's free. It's all right. Because here's what, here's what we've missed. We've gotten to a point where we said that God does miracles for our glory, but instead what he does is he does miracles for his. And we've moved that over to be man-centric instead of God-centric, and that's thrown our theology off so that now we believe things that actually aren't true, and then when we build our theology on things that aren't true, when that theology fails, we get upset. Like maybe God isn't who he said he is. But here's what it actually is. God does miraculous things. God intervenes in your stead. The Holy Spirit goes before you. All of these things that you read happen. They're viable. But it's for His glory, not for yours. It's for your goods, for your comfort, for your peace, for your growth. But it's for His glory. And we've messed that up a little bit. We've made that about us instead. We've said that God wants us to be rich and happy and healthy. And then we get, you know, an appendix attack, and the bill comes in, and everything throws off, and we're like, God, what are you doing? Well, we're missing the very fact of what God says that His miracles are for His glory and your good. So as we talk about that today, I want to ask you this. I want to ask you a question to start out as simply, what do you do when you're at an unexpected, impossible place in your life? How do you react like, when you when you wake up? Like, no one wakes up and like, you know what I want to do? I want to have an incredibly challenging day today. Like I hope, I hope that somebody flies into the back of my fender on Wayne Hampton Boulevard and then just drives off. I'm looking forward to that. That is going to be an opportunity for me to love like Jesus today. All right? No one says that. And maybe you do. And then I would say you, we should talk because you might need some counseling, and that's okay. But no one says, like, you know what I'm looking forward to? My kid's getting suspended today at school. Wouldn't that be fun? Right? It'd be great. Let me tell you, as someone who's experienced that twice this year, it's not that fun. It's not, not great. It's not what you want. Right? No, one, no one wants that. But we do claim other promises of God, right? God wants me happy. Right? The fullness of joy. We talked about that a few weeks ago as well. But what, what we've come to realize, if you actually build on solid theology, what you see is that the fullness of joy is the ability to trust in God when those things do happen. And that He is unchanging, even when our lives do. See, that's why so many people have lost faith today. Have walked out of church and said, well, the church is just about A, B, C, and D. No, the church can't be about that. The church is about pointing us toward the cross and saying, "Like, listen, when things don't go like you think they should, you're okay because the one who holds the world in his hands hasn't forgotten you and is still taking you along that path. And so what do you do when you're at an unexpected, impossible place? Maybe like it's a relationship in your life. Maybe it's with parents or with a spouse, with your kids. Or maybe it's health. Your health is just deteriorating. Something that should, should be or should not be happening is and you don't know where else to turn. Maybe it's money because you woke up and bills got too big. Or work. Maybe you're at a place where you're working and you just have that one person who everyone loves that just hates you. You guys ever been there before? Like, if, if you quit today, that would be all right with me. You're like, I had a girl when I worked at Enterprise because, <clears throat> you know, you want to learn something about humility, go wash cars in a coat and jacket, 96-degree heat and 120% humidity. Let me tell you. And I had this girl who just, I don't, I don't know if I just smiled too much. I don't know. She just could not stand me. And she made it a practice every day of telling me Jesus wasn't coming back. Like, that was her thrust in life, you know. She walked up, and just in the middle of conversation, like, we'd be hanging out, like, oh, yeah, I got this pickup at 2 o'clock. She says, hey, you know Jesus isn't coming back, right? I'm like, thanks. I'm gonna set her name like thanks, person. I'm, like, That's, I- I'm sure Jesus is up on the throne being like crap, well, she told me I'm not coming back, everything's ruined now. You know? I was just like, if you would just leave, that would be awesome. My life would be so much better. Not that she had power just because she was annoying, you know. But but here's the, the reality of that nothing shows us how out of control we are, like an impossible, unexpected situation. So what do you do when faith moves itself into belief, when, when the, the rubber hits the road and the unexpected strikes? What do, you, what do you do? Because, you know, if we're being real and honest, like at, at some point, maybe you guys feel this way. There's sometimes when I know I'm just playing with fire and I feel like uh, Elf, on the movie Elf, when Buddy is like doing the jack-in-the-box, like ding, 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 and he knows it's coming. He goes, blink, and he gets scared. That's how I feel sometimes life is. You're, you know you're just, kinda, you're just pushing it, right? You're like, I'll get rest tomorrow. Or like, oh, that bill will get paid later. Just one more cheeseburger. You know, all these things happen, right? And you're like, okay, we're good, we're good. And then it pops up and makes noise in your face when you get scared. Like, I think that's how life works regularly for us. And at some point, we're going to turn that handle one more time. The jack-in-the-box is going to be out of the box, and then we have to decide what we're actually going to do what actually matters to us. And that's where we have Jesus. Because here's what we have in Jesus. We have uh, a God who is outside of ourselves to trust in and to trust in, to follow, to walk with, who when the, the skeletons in our closet present themselves, he's still there. When, when things go haywire because at some point um, your own strength is going to fail you. I know that's that's uh, probably an easy thing for some of the younger people in here to hear and you're like, yeah, I'll be okay. And then you hit 35 and you're like, wow, my body hurts. And then you hit 60 and you're like, I wish I was 35 where my body just hurt a little bit. Um, at some point, your strength isn't enough anymore. You can't just power through and will things to happen. And what do you do when that happens? And so... Head to John 2 with me. I'm going to talk about um, Jesus' very first miracle, which is a popular thing for Reformed guys in the South to talk about because it has alcohol involved. And um, we're getting there. Some of us caught that. We're getting there. Here's what's happened. Jesus called his first disciples. He's hanging out in the city, and he goes to a wedding, hanging out with tons of people. I want to read to you uh, the first, I think, like five verses, and then we'll get to the rest here in a little while. But this is what happens. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, so right where Jesus is from. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I tell my mom that a lot. Um, Kidding. It's a joke. She's on the way to the beach right now. She'll listen to this later and yell at me this week. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So let me give you some context. Whoops. Some context for weddings back in the day, okay? Weddings were not just where you invited a few people and you had those, those two. those always two awkward people who come to you and, like, Hey, heard your hat to so the wedding soon. And all you can think of is like, yeah, you're not on the list. Sorry. I like, really want to make sure everyone keeps their shirts on the whole time. So you're not coming. No one's experienced that. Just me. Okay, well. But they weren't like that. They were actually citywide engagements. So all of Galilee is invited to this wedding, right? Like, In fact, a way to kind of show up with the Joneses is you invite everybody you can. The more people you can invite, the better off you look the more people to celebrate with your family and the more esteem and honor it shows to the city about how you, who you are, what you have, you know, it's, I think pretty similar to weddings in the South, actually, probably. When I, I make fun of my mom and my mother-in-law all the time, because when we got married, my wife and I, they were like, Hey, here's the budget. And I was like, awesome. We're going to go hang out in a park. Not like one of my friends marry us. And then we're just going to go buy a house and go to Disney cruise, which was, that would have been all the budget we had. But, um, they said, you can do whatever you want with the money, you know, and whatever you don't use, you can just spend or put in the bank. I'm like, great, this is a perfect opportunity to not be poor anymore. And then they both went, and here's a list of people we want you to invite. Wham! And it was like this thing this thick, you know? You're like, great, all of Columbia and the state of Ohio are going to be there. This is great. I've, I, none of my friends can come. Like, in fact, we decided to have all of our friends be in the wedding party. It was the biggest wedding party you've ever seen. So that was the only way they were going to get there, right? That's pretty similar to what's happening here. The the weddings back then were just a a festival. And they went on for days. In fact, the goal, the kind of normal wedding, was seven days long. Seven days long. Now, I went to a Christian college. I was ready for my wedding to be over when we said I do. Had things to get on. Like, Like the reception, guys. Like the reception. Jeez Louise, what are we doing? Summer. Seven days. And, and over that seven days, the groom was expected to pay for everything, for everyone, for the entire time. So you guys think you have a hard time, like when you go get married, like inviting your weird uncle to come, and you're going to be like, well, that's $24 I'm not getting back, right? Because he ordered the salmon instead of the salad. Because of course he did. You were expected, as a groom, to pay for everything for a week for people, everyone in the city. It's insane. It's insane. And so, like, place yourself here. It's it's the biggest day of your life. Everyone you know is there and everyone you don't. They're all partying on your dime and you're expected to give everyone everything they need for a full week. A full week. Now this is kind of we have a low country boil coming up on June 30th. So I, I kind of feel a little bit of that pressure right now. Um so if you're coming, let us know. We'd love for you to be there. And I can eat shrimp for a week, but, um, you know, I'm sure the interns will get tired of potatoes by Thursday. So because um, I'm getting the shrimp. So. But, but as they're having this party and this get-together, here comes Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she says, hey, the wine's run out. Like, this isn't going to be able to continue. Th- there's an issue. And this is because probably Mary and some of the other women actually were the ones who were serving. We were taking care of the people so they would have known a little bit beforehand so they can kind of see the writing on the wall. And she comes to Jesus, she's like, Hey, listen, um, bad news, they're out of wine. Right now, for us in our uh, like American centric deal, we're like, That's cool, just go to Publix. You know, it's a little more expensive there, but you get higher quality, so it works out well. But actually, what would have happened in this time period, and this is why context is so important, is that if wine stopped flowing, the party stopped, and if the party stopped, then it actually brought intense shame upon your family, because the last name mattered then. I tell people, um, you know, when I played sports, I was like, if my last name is on the back of my shirt, I want it to represent greatness. I don't want to be like the annoying kid who doesn't try hard enough. Like, it matters. Our names matter. And so, in this capacity here, in this wedding, if they would have run out of wine, it would have been such a serious offense that, that... Literally, they would bring lifelong shame to their family and to their marriage. That when people saw them, the first thought would be "There are those people who didn't actually take care of their invited guests, who didn't have enough. In fact, it, it was taken so seriously that the wife's family, the bride's family, could sue you for running out of wine at a wedding. Like This is serious, but can you imagine that nowadays? Nowadays, we go we go to weddings, we're like, the bar isn't open. All I get is wine and champagne. What is? This? I hear people where if you didn't do it properly, you could be sued. You have immediate issues between your family members. Anybody have awkward Thanksgiving dinners? Yeah, two of us, Marcus and I. That's great. Everyone else, can we come to your Thanksgiving dinner this year, please? Um, I'd really like that personally. You're starting a marriage out with this this dynamic of the wife thinking that the husband uh, wasn't careful enough, didn't plan well enough, didn't have enough, didn't take care of her family. Not a great way to start out your marriage. And literally the entire town that you brought into your wedding, that just walked in, sees you now as unprepared and poor and less than, and even worse, selfish. And this is what happens. And so Mary goes to Jesus. And I love Jesus' response. Woman, that goes over well in this day and age. Um, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, again, let me provide some context. If you actually go back and study the Greek for this, the word he used is just like us saying ma'am. All right, so I know people have read this, but like Jesus is kind of a jerk. No, he's not. He's being actually very kind, right? He's saying ma'am. What does this have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. And here's the shift that we notice. This is why Jesus is Jesus, because the beginning of his ministry marks a very interesting spot. He says, woman, this doesn't have to do with me because I'm not under your authority anymore as your son. Now I'm moving in to the authority that I came to be, which is God. And so this is actually a monumental shift in the life of Jesus. He goes from being Mary's son to being God of the universe. But still, Mary comes and says, like, hey, listen, there's this issue. They've run out of wine. And then she just tells the servants. I love this. This is actually, I think my mom's a pretty biblical woman because she does the same thing. So just do whatever he says. With the expectation that Jesus is going to move, he's going to do something. He's going to make the situation fix. She doesn't ask Jesus. She says, Jesus, there's a problem. Servants, do whatever he says. It's Kind of like my mom, when I come over, I'm like, mom, my, my son won't stop yelling. She's like, Colin, do whatever he says, and just runs away. I'm like, thanks, mom. But she knew what she was asking of Jesus. She knew that he was more than capable to save the skin of this family. She knew that the moment he began his ministry, it was going to start his death. And he knew that to step into this miracle was going to cost him tremendously. That's why he says, my hour has not yet come. Mary says, listen, like, I don't know why you think I'm going to fix this now. It's not yet time for me to go and to take this next step. Because Jesus knew when he took that step that people were going to see that something was different about him and it was going to catapult him into ministry. And Jesus is the only person on earth who at that time knows that his catapulting into ministry was going to also catapult him to his death. Listen, there are days when, like, I don't want to wake up. Because I just know there's a meeting I don't want to attend. Right? April 15th, my least favorite day of the year is an adult male. I just want to sleep. So stay in bed till the 16th. But well, what I learned is the government doesn't they actually continue past that, which is weird. Dang it. Thought I outsmarted them. I was there. But but this is what's crazy is that this is just the beginning of the story of what's actually going to happen. And Jesus is about to bring deliverance, and he's going to do it at a major cost of himself. And so stay with me, because this is when we're going to get to a point where I I hope that you are going to struggle as you walk out the door. So verse 5, His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So places for people to wash their hands, right? That's what it is. Like you dip your hand, Wash it off so that you be clean, religiously clean, ceremoniously clean. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And I actually have a picture of what the jars uh, looked like. Um, And these are actually jars that were, do we have it? We don't have it? I had a picture um, of the jars. But they were actually made out of stone instead of the, the typical clay pots that you would see. Because the clay, they said, would actually bring disease and sickness. And you could actually use the water and become unclean because of that. Sorry, I don't know why we're having this problem here. But for purification water, for those jars, they were actually pieces of stone that were chopped out and chiseled out so that no impurities could get in. There we go. That's what it looked like. I knew we had a picture. See, I'm not a liar. So they would actually like take it and, and chisel it out. And put the water in there, and they would hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. And it was just meant so people could come and bring their uncleanliness in, be ceremoniously clean, and go into the wedding services. What was a holy situation? Now, some of the, our germaphobes are in here going like, okay, so you just keep dipping your hand. That's kind of gross. Yeah, that's, that's the difference between ceremoniously clean and actually clean. My, my children like to be ceremoniously clean, um, but not necessarily fully clean. I don't know how many of you guys have raised kids. My son, uh, we're letting him take his own showers now because he's seven. Um, that's, anyways. But he's really good at coming in and like presenting himself clean, right? And he this much of his head was washed, and so he'll just put like the front of his head towards you, thinking you're gonna smell here. You know what I mean? And, like he's outsmarted us. So he did this a couple days ago. He came in, and he just presented the crown of his head, and I smelled it, and I smelled the back of his head. And let me tell you what the funk there. He was blown away by that. He was like, I took a shower. I washed my hair. And I'm like, yes, but just here, you missed all of this. That's kind of what's happening here. They come in, clean their hands, doesn't do anything, but it's a ceremony. And so Jesus says, go and fill the jars up to the brim. Now, that does a couple of things for us here. What we see is that we see Jesus calling someone ordinary. The less than. Notice he doesn't tell his disciples, he doesn't tell Mary, he doesn't tell the people who are in charge of the wine, he tells the servants, like, hey, go fill that and go fill it to the brim. Go, go top it off, because we're about to have a party. He, he calls ordinary people, and then he uses what religious law would dictate clean, and he moves that and uses that the the miracle of his purpose, or purpose of his miracle, rather, excuse me. And he has them fill it to the brim for a couple reasons, because it, it helps us and would help people know that Jesus wasn't using magic, smoke and mirrors. Because here's what people would do. On the front end of the wedding, you'd provide the really good wine, right? That's like the dinner wine. You want to show it off and be like, this was twice as expensive. It's like when you go to any restaurant and an $8 bottle costs you about $68, $70, right? It's a big racket. Like, this is our fancy wine, so guests would come to the wedding ready to celebrate, and they're drinking all the fancy wine, and you can read fancy as, like, high volume and alcohol, right, highly fermented, the good stuff. So that would get them a little bit excited, and they wouldn't care as much, and then as people were, um, their palate was a little less defined, I guess is a churchy way of saying that, they would bring out... The mixed wine, the wine you would mix with water, sometimes three parts water, two parts water to one part wine. The stuff that wasn't as high quality because at that point in day six, I don't know how many of you guys went to college, but day six, it doesn't matter quite as much, right? And so it wouldn't be as big of a deal. And so Jesus says, hey, fill them to the brim so that when this happens, people can't say like, oh, they just added wine. He added a little bit of wine that was left. Fill it to the brim so people can't say that it's something that it's not. And then he had the servants fill the water. Verse 8. And so he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So the master of the feast was like kind of the wedding planner, basically. Um, I went to see Hello Dolly a couple weeks ago, or last week, which if you're into Broadway, you know that. Um, and I obviously didn't because I didn't know what I was doing until I got there. but. um there was a scene where it was very uh, Broadway-esque, and they were dancing. You had servers who were spinning with plates and flipping bottles, and all I could think of was my time at and Grill when I tried not to walk into people and throw pasta on tables, and thought those guys really know what they're doing. Um, but but that's basically how this master of the feast would do. They would be very uh, presentable and very kind, and like la 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 with everything, make it look beautiful, make the wedding an event, and so the 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 master of the feast comes in, as verse 8 says, tasted the wine, the water now become wine. And he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of feasts feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. So imagine this, they're, a few, they're three days in, they're running out of wine. Jesus has this miracle happen, and it's so good that the the head festival feast person, that's great English, comes and tastes the wine, and he says, "Listen, uh, typically people save the good or use the good stuff at the front end and save the bad stuff at the end. But here we are toward the end, and like this is the why, This is the good stuff. Like why did why did we not use this earlier? What well, what happened here?" Because what Jesus does is is a a full-on miracle. He doesn't halfway do anything. And listen, I've heard some bad agenda-driven theology say, like, well, you know, it wasn't heavily fermented. Listen, here's what, we're just going to say this out loud, okay? It was wine that was fermented, and it was so good that it was meant to be from the front of the party when people would drink too much. All right, like, we don't need to idolize alcohol or anything, but we also don't need to demonize it. It was not grape juice, okay? But here's what Jesus does. He, he takes what was meant to serve a normal purpose and he uses it in a miraculous way and he, he saves the bridegroom, deep shame. Now, wh- what they did was they deserved it. They didn't prepare. They weren't ready. And yet here is Jesus doing something so incredible that it literally saves them from a lifetime of shame, from bringing pain on their wedding and their marriage and their own family, Jesus comes in and he saves them from it. And I love, there's a poet named uh, Richard Crashaw, and I don't know who he is, so maybe you do. Um, But he said this beautiful line about this moment. He said that the unconscious waters saw its master and blushed. I love that imagery. The unconscious waters saw its master and blushed. The family had no other plan in place. There was nothing they could do to save the situation. And yet, here Jesus is. He takes something meant for ceremony. He takes water that was literally used to wash hands and feet. And he takes what was meant for religious ceremony, and he brings it to this incredible purpose of removing shame from people instead. He takes what was normal, and he makes it supernatural. And the unconscious waters saw its master and blushed. He took something meant for ceremony and made it so good that the wedding feast master came and said, this is the good stuff. He said, everyone serves the good wine first. When people are drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. Here's why that matters, because that's exactly what Jesus does for us. We've spent too much time arguing about the validity of alcohol in the Catholic or the Christian church, rather, or Catholic big C, you could say, using this. And we've missed what it is that Jesus actually and John actually wants us to see, which is the miracle of taking something that was normal and making it something that is incredible and supernatural and miraculous. When Jesus takes something meant to take dirt and he changes into something meant to bring glory even at the cost of himself. Because this catapults him into the pathway that leads to his death. And and this is why I think this is so important for you and I today. This is is the rub, I guess we can say. When, When the rubber meets the road, this is why this moment matters. Not so that we can go get some Italian food and have a glass of red wine and say, well, Jesus turned water into wine, yay. But instead... Because we need to recognize that Jesus truly is a God of the impossible. That that Jesus took water in a stone bucket and made it wine that was good enough to honor a city. And, And I think what we've done is, we've done really well at learning a lot of things about the Bible. Like being able to speak theology or to ask questions that we feel like might trip ourselves up. We've gotten good at that, but what we've forgotten is that we serve a God who is a God of the impossible, a God of impossible restoration. But here's what I want you to hear is that you can't fear bringing impossible circumstances to the God of the impossible. But we've done that. We've taught ourselves that the way to live is just to get through it ourselves to push through, find strength, right? Talk to enough people, do your own thing. Or maybe, I don't know, church, maybe it's come to church and act like everything's totally okay. Ever been there? Keep up with the Joneses, make sure everybody knows that, you know you're fine. How are you? Great. Everything's awesome. I'm going to eat this donut, and I'm going to go cry about the 200 calories I just put down. because It breaks my keto diet, and I've worked so hard. Right? But see, here's the thing that we see. Mary knew exactly where to go. She knew exactly what to do. She walked to Jesus and just presented the problem. Said, hey, they're about to run out of wine. Hey, servants, just do whatever he tells you. She knew exactly what to do. She knew that Jesus is a God of the impossible, and that in an impossible situation, the only way to get through it is to seek the impossible God. guys, that's what we have to do, too. Listen, everybody has something going on in their lives. Everybody does. Everybody does. I've met a lot of people who are very comfortable, who didn't have to live in problems, who can write checks and pay them off, or who can present a beautiful life, not have to worry about things, who live the Instagram life. And we've been told that that's what we're supposed to do, is to follow that ideal but that's not what we're supposed to do. What Jesus says is to come to him with your impossibility and watch him maneuver it and work it into something miraculous. We can't fear bringing the impossible moments to an impossible God. You're not made to do it by yourself. The second is this. And this is a hard one for me, I'm just going to be honest with you. The second thing we need to take home today is that we cannot disqualify anyone's ability to be used by God to do miraculous things. We've gotten way too good at telling people they're not good enough. We just have. But notice, who does Jesus use for this miracle? Church, who does he go to? He goes to six stone pots and servants. He makes the saving parties of the whole party, of the whole city, the ones who are there to serve and take care of everybody else. God uses servants to change entire cities. That's why, listen, when we want God to do impossible things, when we talk about these big goals that we have for our church, it's not because we want glory or because we think God is going to use people who speak really well or sing really well or lead really well. It's that God uses the normal servants to to do his greatest miracles. And we forgot that, and we just said, I don't have to be active. We'd rather attend the wedding than be the ones who are able to hand out the wine. And guys, listen, if we're just the people who are attending the wedding, we're missing the miracle that God has for us. I don't want to be just someone who attends the wedding. I don't want to be a church that just has a ceremony. I want to be a place where we see God do miraculous things. I'm not talking about people coming up and like one leg gets longer than the other. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, let's just get beyond that. I'm talking about marriages that were broken being healed. I'm talking about sick children being taken care of. I'm talking about addictions dying. I'm talking about restoration of relationships. I'm talking about God bringing hope to people who have none who said that they aren't worthy of it. That's what we want to see happen here. But God doesn't need people who can get up and do wonderful things. God just needs servants. He brings a miracle. All he needs is people to serve the wine. That's it. And so what I want you to hear is, is I want you to know that we don't disqualify anyone to serve the wine. And the third, the last thing is this that the outcome of the miracle is sweeter than anything we could hope for. Now listen, there's something to be said for doing something on your own and with your own hands and making something move, you know, and putting something together and people marveling at it. That's why we drive cars that we want to drive and wash and wax them and make them look pretty. That's why we want our houses clean and taken care of and why we always want the next new thing because of how it portrays us to be. But here's the reality – In this moment, the the master of the feast came to the bridegroom and said, why did you hide this wine? He didn't go to Jesus, he didn't know who it was from. He didn't go to the servants, he went to the bridegroom, he said like, hey, this that we have now is better than anything that we used to have. Guys, here's the deal we have to understand that when we give all that we have to Jesus and allow Him to work in that miracle way, that what He gives us is better than anything that we could have tried to produce with our own hands. It's better. It's greater. I don't know how to like, establish that any better. Like, I, can, I can work every day with my son to make him a really great baseball player. And I can be proud when he's moderately okay at baseball. But, but that joy that I might experience falls down when we see what God might call us to and use us to change people's lives. It's a totally different concept. Because what God has for us and has for you is much sweeter than anything you could build yourself. Yes. You could spend a Friday night hanging out, watching a movie, laugh a lot, invite some friends. You could come here. You could serve families and hang out with kids for three hours so that other people can go and have a chance to have a date they haven't had with their spouse or trying to rebuild their family. And then when that celebration happens, we celebrate that collectively. Because what the outcome of the miracle that Jesus has for us is greater than what we could build. Because God in his first miracle at the onset of his ministry demonstrates this also, that he will bring life and vitality to that which was tasteless and cast aside. So my question for you is this, as we close this morning. What is it that you need to bring to him today? What impossible way do you need God to move? What are you holding on to that you don't need to hold on to anymore? Well, that's physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever. You know what it is, not me. Because as long as you try to hold on to it, we can't give it to God and he can't do miraculous things in it. So, church, my challenge today is this. Bring him your stone water. And watch him turn it into sweet, sweet wine. And then, when he does, be blown away and thankful. Let me pray. Father, you're good. Lord, I thank you that you are in the business of miracles and you're in the business of restoration, you're in the business of hope and and Lord, I I, just, I pray that as we celebrate that with this last song today that it wouldn't stop here. But God, that um you would move in our hearts to that you would move in our hearts to believe that you are who you say you are. That that you've called us to this church because you want to do things that are impossible to everyone on the outside that we know you're capable of. And so, God, I just ask that you would give us that vision, give us that mission, give us that heart. Lord, break us down of our pride. Break us down of our insecurity. And Father, when we're in moments where it seems impossible... Help us to remember that you are exactly who you say you are. Because if you're anything less, you're not God. Help us to believe that and to live in that. Thank you for all you do. Because you're God, and you're good, and you love us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you felt closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening and we can't wait to see you again soon.